Uh, I'm Dr. Michael Whitworth from Merton College, but I'm also a lecturer in the English faculty here. Um, what I'd like to talk about for about 20 minutes is realism and what we mean by realism, particularly in relation to the Victorian novel. And it's an astonishingly slippery concept. Clearly it's got something to do with the real, but it's not the same as. And it's a concept where we can easily become unstuck, or stuck, uh, depending how you look at it, um, when we want to argue with it. It's clearly hugely important. We value literature, and not just the subset that I would call realist literature. We value a great deal of literature because it evokes something that feels like the real world. We read novels and we might laugh or cry, so there are genuine bodily reactions being produced by small marks on a piece of paper. Yet we also value works of literature because we know they're well-shaped, because we know they're at a remove from reality. Um, and so part of the, the huge question I'm touching upon uh, in this lecture is how do we resolve that fact, or that, that paradox, that it can both seem real when we're immersed in a work of fiction, or indeed a work of drama, though I'm really concentrating on fiction today, um, and yet we're aware it follows conventions, it's artificial, um, if nothing else, it's made out of language. It's not made out of the gritty, smelly stuff that real life is made from. My main example for this lecture is going to be Elizabeth Gaskell's novel, Mary Barton, subtitled A Tale of Manchester Life, which she wrote in about 1847 and which was published anonymously in two volumes in 1848 and is still available um, in paperback editions uh, at the present day. Um, and I'll, I'll come back and tell you a few things about that in, in a moment. Um, in thinking about what we're doing when we're doing literary criticism, I find it quite useful to refer to this diagram. It's from an ancient book by M.H. Abrams called The Mirror and the Lamp from 1953. I've actually modified his terminology in that he talks about the work and he talks about the universe, but uh, the same basic structure is there. It's quite useful for thinking about the different ways we might talk about uh, a work, about a literary text. Um, for example, if we emphasised uh, the relation of the text to the author, we'd be undertaking an essentially biographical kind of criticism. So we might, for example, in thinking about how Mary Barton manages to convey a compelling and persuasive account of what life was like in Manchester, we bring into that account uh, uh, the fact that Gaskell lived and, and worked in Manchester. Her husband was a Unitarian clergyman. Um, we might also use biographical evidence to uh, support our belief in the uh, emotional authenticity of what she describes. Her son... Um, had died at the age of 10 months in 1845, and a number of the quite harrowing deaths that are described in the early chapters of this novel might be seen to be versions of it, workings through of that. But it's a very um, biographical focus to take. I mean, this is a tale of Manchester life. It's not a tale of Elizabeth Gaskell's life. It's a novel that's about the experiences of working-class people, not of middle-class clergymen's uh, wives. It, to look at it that way, to emphasise that axis between the text and the author, is to personalise, it's potentially to sentimentalise the novel, 
It's to underplay her skill as a novelist in shaping that material into a story, into representations, into a plot, and so forth. And it's also to underplay the role taken by literary tradition and literary convention. She hasn't invented the novel overnight. She's, what she's writing fits into, um, although it does make some innovations, fits into kinds of novels that have been written before. So simply thinking about it as uh, the expressive emanation of the author um, doesn't really get at anything like half of it. We might, in trying to think about why does this novel seem real or does this novel seem real, um, try to get some access to mid-19th century uh, Manchester reality, as it were. Um, and the sort of simplest trend in this in, in writing criticism is to write about the characters as if they were real, which in a sense, of course, is true to the the response we often have when we begin to empathise, when we begin to be drawn into a work of fiction. Um, and so to write about character and event. Um, and that can happen even in more sophisticated and modern accounts that, let's say, want to talk about issues of, of gender or uh, social class, that they see the, the novel as providing an uncomplicated window onto reality and depicting what it was really like in mid-19th century Manchester. Um, another slightly more sophisticated account might be to say, well, is this a, a realistic account of uh, Manchester life? Let's look at some non-fictional accounts. Let's look, for example, at Friedrich Engels' um, The Condition of the Working Class in England, um, which he wrote in, in German in the mid-19th century. It wasn't translated into English until the late 19th century. Um, or let's look at other sociological accounts of working class life and compare it. Now, I think the mistake we'd be making there would be to confuse realism as a literary mode with realistic as an adjective denoting some sort of uh, approximation to reality. And they're not exactly the same thing. There's a danger if we go to look at factual, historical, sociological accounts that we treat them as normative and we treat the literary as always some sort of deviation from or supplement to uh, the sociological truth. And that's a very dangerous position for a literary critic to put themselves in because they're saying literature is essentially secondary, it's decorative. It might add some emotional flavour of reality, but it can only ever follow along in the, the, the wake of sociological truth, factual and ultimately scientific kinds of truth. Um, so what we'd be dealing with, I think, or the, the fallacy that's often involved in trying to follow that line from the text to reality is some notion of um, transparency um, between the text and reality. Again, an approach that would forget that texts are made of words, they're made of chapters, they're made of plots, they're made of all these artificial cultural um, constructions. An extremely sceptical approach to the text, which would try to remain true to its power as a literary work of art, would be to say, let's cut off those connections between the author um, and various versions of this throughout the 20th century, the death of the author, the uh, notion of impersonality, um, or, and let's cut off connections to reality because language can't access it. And you see various versions of this throughout um, 20th century literary criticism often known as formalism because they take an interest in the form of the text um, removed from all sorts of all, all its other connections. Um, one version of that would be um, what's known as structuralist formalism, which would consider um, the text as purely as language. Uh, it might be language that uh, 
draws upon other language, but it never manages to make that connection to reality. And there are some good reasons for doing this, and it does focus us on the linguisticity of the, the literary text, and the fact that that's what it's made from. But, of course, it fails to um, hold true to the respects in which the text moves us, uh, moves other people, and seems to, seems to um, conjure uh, uh, an actual reality. The George Orwell famous phrase about good prose being like a window pane, you can see right through it, I think is an interesting analogy to, to carry on with, not because I think it's right, but because, of course, if we look in a well-polished window frame, what we can also see is a reflection of ourselves. And it's worth thinking about that as a metaphor, a loose sort of symbol, really, for um, where we might go, which is to think about how the text relates to the third pole on this diagram, to the reader, and how its relation to the reader might have something to do with its ability to conjure reality. So what I propose is that realism, rather than depicting reality, aims to evoke it. Realism, rather than being descriptive language, is persuasive language. It's attempting to persuade you that this is what it was like to be a working class man in Manchester in the 1840s, for example. Um, by implication, it might, if it's working for one reader or one group of readers, it might not be working for some others. So we start to accept, I think, in order to understand how realism evokes reality, we also need to have in our minds the notion that it might not evoke reality for everyone, that it would evoke reality through codes, let's say, um, through conventions is a better word, I think, um, that wouldn't necessarily be accessible to everybody, wouldn't necessarily felt, be felt to be true by everybody. And it's thinking about how the text works for the reader that brings us to the notion of the implied reader. Now we could, of course, in trying to think who a text was written for, uh, we could try to refer to external historical evidence of various sorts. We could say, what did it cost to buy a copy of Mary Barton in 1848? Who could have afforded that? And we could take a sociological approach in that way. We could see where was it reviewed, what kind of periodicals was it reviewed in, and what sort of social class are they speaking to? Where is it not reviewed? What kind of places didn't consider this worth considering. Um, what did the reviewers say and did they comment upon the kind of person who might want to read this? And that there's a, a famous review of Mary Barton that says, the, the, I will paraphrase, the person sitting in their kind of nicely carpeted living room wanting to know why a working man might turn to chartism that the campaign for the, the universal vote in effect. Um, that sort of person should read Mary Barton because then they will understand why there's so much discontent among the workers. Um, so we do find that kind of evidence in reviews. Um, we might look through the author's diaries and letters and those sorts of documents to um, see who they thought they were writing for. We might look for actual surviving copies and see if they have inscriptions and find out about uh, actual readers of the text. But none of that would be the implied reader. What we'd be talking about there, in a sense, is the book and not the text. We'd be talking about the historical reader uh, rather than the one being depicted by the implied reader. Now, there's a very interesting question about how those two things interact, which there isn't really time to cover today. Um, so what I'll be looking at more purely is a way of reading that might 
uncover who a text was meant for. And the, um, there's a useful analogy in this, which is thinking about, uh, just as a very crude analogy for the employed reader, thinking about looking at a painting, um, or indeed looking at a, a TV screen. Um, if you want to look at that one, you need to sit a certain distance away. If you're looking at a huge painting or a huge screen, you need to be several metres away. If you're looking at something the size of a, a small digital screen, you need to be a matter of 20, 30 centimetres away. Um, so the size of the screen implies your position in relation to it. Text, uh, and text unfolding in, in time, um, in language, are of course, far more complicated. They might imply a whole set of different positions. You might be having to constantly move around, so to speak, to put yourself in the right position. Um, the German theorist about all this, Wolfgang Eiser, um, sums it up, uh, that says the implied reader is the figure who embodies all those predispositions necessary for a literary work to exercise its effect. Uh, so we, need, we come to text not as uh, blank canvases, empty vessels. We come to them with uh, predispositions, which we might uh, flesh out as being um, cultural knowledge, anticipations, um, expectations, etc. Um, one of the problems with the act of reading is that it's not terribly helpful at telling you how to find those predispositions. It's, it's quite a high-level theory sort of work. Um, I think also talking about the effect of the text is something we might kind of probe at. Maybe texts have different effects for different readers, so it could be potentially pluralised. Um, a nice emblem of this very famous painting, Holbein's The Ambassadors from the 16th century. Um, as you may know, we have this strain, we have apparently a kind of representational picture of two ambassadors in their finery, uh, and at the bottom we have this strange grey smear, and as many of you may know, um, that part of the painting can only be seen from a peculiar angle. So if you were to walk to about here, I will probably have to lie down on the floor somewhat gracelessly, so I won't. Um, you would be able to understand that strange grey smear. What it is, is a skull. So that picture, unusually, and as a kind of painterly trick, implies two different viewers, implies two different reading positions, from which it tells, as it were, quite different stories. And the story it tells is an absolutely standard kind of early modern one of memento mori, etc. Let's not get too stuck on that. But I think it's a useful analogy for the, the possibility that the implied reader in the singular um, isn't always true, that text actually can be talking in several different ways. There's a, there's a good book on children's literature by, I think, Peter Hunt, um, in which he talks about the way that children's books often have to talk um, to the adult reader who might be reading it aloud or reading it with the child, as well as talking to the child. And sometimes that's a matter of nods and winks, which is a bit tiresome. But sometimes it's just a sense of putting forward a, a deeper story that can be understood by adults in a rather different way from the way that it's received by the child. So, I mean, children's literature will be a very obvious case of a, of a dual implied reader. So where do we look um, for the implied reader? We might look to generalisations that the narrator makes, um, often cast in the present tense, often referring in a, an inclusive way or a hopefully inclusive way to us, to we, to our beliefs. References to assumed shared knowledge. Simply, that might come in the form of literary allusions. They expect you to know what a certain text is um, and, and uh, can, can refer to it in a very abbreviated way. Or um, deictics, saying, uh, as George Eliot's Middlemarch famously opens, uh, Miss Brooke had the kind of dress, that kind of dress that was thrown into relief, sorry, that kind of beauty that was thrown into relief by poor dress. Um, so it's gesturing, as it were, to that kind of beauty. 
he was one of those men who did such and such. And we're expected to recognise that type and understand it and process um, what we, we see in relation to this shared cultural knowledge that isn't in the text. So thinking about the text in itself is not adequate to that. We need to go beyond the text to um, this kind of cultural knowledge. Negatives. Um, that, for example, at the start of Great Expectations, Dickens describes Magwitch as a man with no hat. And it's a very peculiar thing, if you think about it, for descriptive language to say what someone wasn't wearing. Where would you stop in that? He wasn't wearing a voluminous pink skirt. He wasn't, etc., etc. Um, but, of course, we're expecting, as um, polite middle-class readers, uh, that every outdoors, anybody outdoors would be wearing a hat if they're respectable. To be not wearing a hat is kind of to be below the pale, beyond the pale, below some sort of class marker. Marking dialect as deviant from standard language, um, spelling words differently to try and convey how they're pronounced by somebody who isn't, as it were, one of us, um, is another way that starts to imply who's reading this. And in a much vaguer category, relating the unfamiliar to the familiar, um, assuming that the reader knows certain things about the world and trying to relate by analogy or metaphor um, what the, what's new in the text to those um, familiar things. I won't have time really to, to find you examples of that. Um, so in chapter 6 of Mary Barton, the, I'll say a bit about Mary Barton perhaps. Um, the early chapters, about the first 9 or 10 chapters, are quite slow moving, quite descriptive, uh, and entirely dwell on working class families, mill workers in Manchester. There's a sense of there being relatively recent immigrants to Manchester from the, from the countryside, uh, from, from the north more generally, um, and you know, some of them still have this kind of folklorish knowledge of, of herbal medicine, those sorts of things. Um, after about chapter 10, it, it turns into a rather more sensational and, and you might say melodramatic kind of novel. There's a, a murder of the mill owner's son. Um, there's uh, accusations being made, people having to prove their innocence, etc., um, but the, the early chapters are unusually still, in a sense. And, and, uh, but things do happen, and people fall ill. Um, and in the, the scene I want to come to, John Barton, who, who was originally envisaged as a central character, in fact, by, um, by Gaskell. But you can't, have, you can't have a novel in the mid-19th century named after a man who kills a mill owner's son. That's just a bit too... Uh, pushing simply too far, perhaps. Uh, John Barton, this poverty-stricken mill worker, goes in search of medicines for the children of his unemployed friend, um, who's in, in even a worse case, really. And his journey, part of his journey, is narrated like this. It is a pretty sight to walk through a street with lighted shops. The gas is so brilliant, the display of goods so much more vividly shown than by day. And of all shops, a druggist's looks the most like the tales of our childhood from Aladdin's garden of enchanted fruits to the charming Rosamond with her purple jar. No such associations had Barton. Yet he felt the contrast between the well-filled, well-lighted shops and the dim, gloomy cellar, and it made him moody that such contrasts should exist. So we have, in that first sentence, um, a move out of the past tense of narration into the present tense of, of generalisation. Um, we are, it implies that we will agree with it, at least for that moment. It is a pretty sight to walk through a street with lighted shops. It implies we've had that experience of walking through town at night, enjoying the pleasure of being a consumer, essentially. Um, it also, uh, and we are there explicitly as our childhood, 
Um, so that's one of those pronouns reaching out to us, trying to include us uh, in this narration. It implies that we have knowledge of certain children's stories, Aladdin's garden, the charming Rosamond with her purple chides, thinking about the huge jars that would often be displayed in pharmacists, coloured liquids um, at, at that time, and indeed into the, the late 20th century. Um, I've not seen one recently. Um, so that first sentence from It is a Pretty Sight down to Her Purple Jar is typical of one of the kinds of sentences we might go looking for if we want to think about who's this written for. Um, what's unusual about Mary Barton, or at least this passage of it, what takes it a little bit further than um, the normal story of the implied reader is the next sentence, no such associations had Barton. It's as if Gaskell pulls the rug from under us. She invites us to identify with looking at the scene in a certain way and then reminds us with a kind of subtle brutality that that's not how he sees it. And then she takes it further, of course, and explains that he does nevertheless feel certain things. He does have uh, a way of feeling uh, in this scene uh, and that that's important and that that highlights a kind of injustice that's going on. Um, so... Negation working there, but in a rather more complicated way because it's negating what the narrator has already set up. Um, it's worth, if you like, thinking about, in terms of the implied reader, thinking how would this read to somebody like John Barson who had somehow obtained this text in 1848? Would that person feel it's a pretty sight to walk through a street with lighted shops if what those shops were screaming at them was the difference between their expectation about wealth and that person's experience of poverty? Probably not. I mean, they might be able to accept that in some senses it could be pretty, but um, I think it's very different from the, the complacent scene that's slightly artificially set up by um, Gaskell in that opening sentence. So, um, by thinking about the implied reader, we can start to think about how texts reach out to us. But we can also start to think about how that reaching out assumes a certain set of knowledge or knowledges, a certain set of values on our part. Um, and why does, why does all this ultimately matter? Well, I think thinking in this way about a text might both explain why we don't like certain texts, why we feel excluded by them, patronised by them. If you read George Eliot's Middlemarch in this way, you notice she's often addressing an older person. Those of us who've lived many years and, and had many experiences, that she doesn't say that as such, but that's implicitly there, that she's addressing somebody of probably George Eliot's age at the time she wrote the novel. Um, and there's a slight sense that she's talking over any younger audience. Um, so it might help us to explain why we don't like certain things. It also helps us realise that our liking other things is not necessarily a universal, that it derives from a certain... Um, set of beliefs or, or expectations about the world that aren't there for everybody. It starts to, it makes us think that the power that realism has over us, while we may still carry on enjoying it and carry on identifying with characters and so forth, um, is something to be slightly wary of. Literature, as well as telling us about things that exist out there in the real world, is also telling us something about who we should be, might be. And it's positioning us, it's constructing us, if only temporarily, as the implied readers of, of its texts. And um, maybe when we finish them, chucking us out into a world that doesn't quite um, allow those, those expectations to continue. 
Uh, it doesn't allow us to enjoy that identification for any more than the period in which we're reading the text. So it's a way, as well as a way of thinking about the, the simple technical matter of how a text um, persuades us and talks to us. It's also a way of thinking about the power of literature and the way that literature relates to other kinds of social power that tell us who we should be and who we are. Thank you.